On the 28th of November 1979, an Air New Zealand sightseeing flight TE-901 crashed into the side of Mount Erebus in Antarctica. All 257 passengers and crew on board were instantly killed. At the time here in New Zealand, it seemed like everyone knew someone connected to the tragedy. I knew someone too. Over the years, we've heard a lot of stories about Erebus, the cover-up, the court case, the controversy. But here's some stories you might not know. Hi, I'm Lizzie Oakes, and when I was 10, I lost my nan, Muriel Florence Rose Harrison, to Erebus. 40 years later, I'm a broadcaster, and on this podcast, Erebus Engraved on Our Hearts, I'm speaking with others whose lives have been impacted by the disaster. Episode 3, The Memorial Champion. Reverend Richard Waugh is a busy man with a big heart. He's a minister and aviation historian. And although Richard didn't lose a loved one on board, he has made it his personal mission to see that the Erebus families have an Erebus National Memorial. Great to have you in the studio with me today, Richard Waugh. (laughs) Thank you, Lizzie. I think we first Mm -hmm. met um, about 18 months ago. I know I came out to see you. I was doing a little Mm. bit of Erebus research and... And it was great to actually, you know, sit down and, and have a conversation with you. And um, so, you know, 40 years, that's that's quite a long time since Erebus. And I wondered, just to start with, uh, where were you when you first heard the news of Erebus? Mm, thank you, Lizzie. Um, 40 years ago, indeed, um, 1979, I was living in Nelson, um, young working man for a General Motors uh, dealership at that time. But my dad was a retired pilot, so, you know, aviation was very much in our family. And um, hence, you know, vivid conversations with my father. I remember watching the television that night and sort of the unbelievable um, development of the tragic story. And, um, yeah, it's kind of seared on my memory as it is on every New Zealander at that time. Obviously, I have somebody who's lost someone. You didn't know anybody on board, but it seemed to me... Um, for ordinary New Zealanders who weren't, uh, you know, connected to the tragedy like myself, like others, that it was still something that you felt really deeply? Mm. Well, and, you know, New Zealand in late 1979 was, you know, three and a half million people were smaller, not quite as diverse as it is today. So I think while I didn't know anyone on the plane, I think everybody knew somebody who knew somebody who was on yes. the plane. and. And it, um, you know, it still is New Zealand's worst civil disaster. And those images of the black smudge on the snow and the wreckage, it was sort of unbelievable for Kiwis. Yeah. A modern airliner, you know, in, in a modern age. So it was something that was um, yeah, very searing on, as I say, on people's memories at that time and continues to be so. Yeah, I mean... Uh I've got a lot of friends here where I work, actually, and they're only in their 20s, so they, they don't remember it. They're too young. And like you say, we've had a lot of new immigrants since that time who don't remember it. But for those of us who were living through that time, it's it's a lot like 9-11, isn't it? You remember where you were and what you were doing when you mm. heard the news. Yeah, very much so. That uh, date, 28th of November, 1979. And, and in the airline industry, Air New Zealand and NAC had just come together to form the new airline the year before. We were on the verge of, you know, the 1980s, a new era. And uh, it was, yes, a time that uh, is unforgettable. And as I say, still New Zealand's worst civil air disaster. And at the time, the fourth worst aviation accident in the world. 
And still today, the worst aviation accident in the Southern Hemisphere. And long may that continue. Mm. Now, you work as a minister, but you've got a strong interest in aviation. You just mentioned your father. Is that how you found your interest? Yes. So um, our family always been Christian. And my mother especially was very evangelical, very prayerful. And uh, so my, my, my upbringing was sort of in an aviation family and I later did a history degree. So the stories of aviation and how airlines in particular changed patterns of communication in New Zealand. You know, when you think about New Zealand, a long, skinny country, you know, mountainous, divided by Cook Strait, um, aviation really changed the way Kiwis move around. And so over the last 25 years, I've specialised in retelling a lot of the stories of particularly the airlines from the 1930s to the 1970s, how they um, will help make New Zealand what it is today. Yeah. So I'm really a social historian. I'm not an engineer and I'm not a pilot. Yes, but you've published quite a few books, haven't you? I know last time I saw you, you actually gave me one of them. It was great. Mm. So how did you um, end up getting involved in the – well, tell us first of all what your involvement is with the Erebus community. Perhaps just backing up a little bit, I've been the honorary chaplain for the, um, the Honourable Company of Air Pilots – uh, for 20 years. So I've had a chaplaincy role into the industry. And that occurred because of my research and writing of aviation books. But I became involved in taking funerals, you know, pilots and engineers, and then air crash um, anniversaries and memorials. So it's been a, a ministry of mine beyond the local church and my national church responsibilities, sort of into a very big industry, the aviation industry. So one of the things along the way was I determined there were nine airliner accidents in New Zealand from the 19, 1938 to 1963, in which 73 New Zealanders were killed within New Zealand. And uh, I set out with some of my um, aviation colleagues to ensure that the names of those 73 were on proper memorials. And it took us about 15 years to do the project. So out of that, it became very apparent to me that uh, there was a pastoral omission with regards to Erebus. There was no place where all the 257 names were sort of publicly accessible. And, and as we were approaching the 40, this was back in uh, January 2016, so four years out, and I was thinking, if we don't do something now for the 40th, we're going to miss the opportunity. And I was reluctant because I'm a busy person in other respects, and I thought, oh, I'm just going to have to start winding it up. So I started my letter-writing campaign in January 2016. Wow. Hmm. And so what happened with that? Who, do, who did you approach and what sort of response did you get? Yeah, well, it's interesting time, Lizzie, because um, you know, writing to politicians, to the government, to the Ministry of Culture and Heritage, and... Um, it was slow reactions, really. The, and one of the initial responses was, well, the government normally does things for 25, 50, 75, 100. In other words, you know, wait till 2029. And I was thinking to myself, well, they didn't say that to the Pike River families or the Canterbury earthquake uh, families. And uh, so there was an urgency to do something. And I was also aware that... The 40th anniversary, still many people around, and uh, particularly those over 75 years of age in the late 70s and 80s and even 90s, 
that it would have been just objectionable to say, well, wait till 2029, we'll do something. Yeah. So that was, I think, my contention to the government. And I think in the end of the day, it convinced them, look, we needed to do something for the 40th yes. in November 2019. So... Um Obviously, I met you when I went to meet you when we talked about maybe 18 months ago. You know quite a few people within the Erebus community. Yeah, so part of our advocacy from 2016 was trying to contact as many Erebus families as we could, and there's no definitive database. Air New Zealand has names, and the government probably has some names. So we formed our website, Erebus National Memorial, and invited families to register, and uh, I think about 250 people did. But the Erebus families, it's like a pyramid. You know, there were 257 people on board. You can imagine their descendants and families. It's thousands of people who have been directly touched by this very tragic accident. So there's a, there's a big group in New Zealand and overseas too. Mm. But um, we had to sort of start from scratch. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, the airline wasn't really cooperative. They wouldn't share any names with us or anything. So we, we as I say, we had to start from the beginning. And that was part of our advocacy to government to say, look, we have, you know, 250 names. And here's, you can see all their comments. They, they believe it's pastorally appropriate. It's interesting what you're saying about... Um you know, they were saying, wait until this date. And, and I think that, um, so it was my nan who passed away on the flight, Muriel Florence Rose Harrison. Always just found that name so beautiful. And um, so that was my mum's mum and my uncle's mum. Now, my mum, she passed away, it was four or five years ago. And my uncle actually passed away earlier this year. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people have passed away mm -hmm. and, and not seen this memorial. Indeed. Mm. Yeah, so I guess for me, um, some people who don't know the history of Erebus, um, they perhaps think, I've, I've read comments online about things, <laughs> it's perhaps a little bit heartless, they don't understand it, it's like, hey, it's 40 years guys, can't you get over it? Mm. But don't you think that Erebus is actually a really complex thing? It's not. Mm. It wasn't just a plane crash into the side mm. of the mountain, was it? Mm. Well, you, you're correct, Lizzie, it is complex. I think in, from a sort of a pastoral, prayerful, caring perspective, um, I think most people have an appreciation of, you know, headstones or war memorials. And most people readily agree what's really important there is the name. And so your loved one, you know, their name in a marble granite or whatever it is, and I think that's what we picked up from the Erebus families. They wanted a place where the names could be together, yeah. all together, 257 names, publicly accessible in an elegant place. And they also said to us, not in a cemetery. And I remember, I think, one night when the Christchurch earthquake memorial was opened, this was 18 months or two years ago, was on TV One, and literally, you know, five minutes later, a lady rang me. And she said she'd seen on the on on the TV, and I'd seen it too. Someone reached up and touched, you know, their loved one's name, mm. and she was literally in tears on the phone, saying, "That's what I want to do. I want to touch my name." And I think that significance of the names and being able to touch your name um, is going to be very special. I think most most people understand that. So, Richard, tell me now where things are at with the memorial. Um, Lizzie, the, the government, you know, about 18 months ago, you know, finally agreed to fund it and there's been a, um, a process that the Ministry of Culture and Heritage followed 
um, including you know calling for designs from professional organisations and a professional group were, were determined, including some family members, about the, the design that was ultimately chosen, which I think is a very appropriate one. And and the determination of the site, because families, you know, asked me from way back, where should the memorial be? And there's no, you know, perfect location, but it was clearly apparent to me that most of the passengers, uh, the New Zealand passengers, the crew, all came from the upper, upper North Island, most from Auckland. So in terms of accessibility, Auckland seemed to be the best place. The, the aircraft took off from Auckland. And um, so in the, the ministry working with Auckland Council um, landed on the site at um, the Dovemire Robinson Park. And uh, I think that park is a very good location, centrally located, and actually in quite significant proximity to Mechanics Bay, where Air New Zealand had its origins in right. Teal, literally a stone's throw. And around the corner, the World War One Walsh Brothers uh, uh, pilot training school. So quite a, an aviation amb- ambience. And, and um, Sir Dubmire Robinson was actually mayor of Auckland at the time of the accident. So okay. that's another little... Um, reason why I think the park is appropriate and um, so the plans are afoot to um, to have the memorial there and, and they're following a process with council and with the Waitamata local board so I think the plan is to have the memorial ready for about May 2020 Okay. so we're, we're looking forward to that Richard, um, in an earlier episode, I was talking with my brother Mark Head, and we were talking about how, when um, you know the crash happened, he was he's seven years older than me. He was away at sea in the Merchant Navy. He came back, and you came. He came into this situation in New Zealand where you're dealing with a private grief, but it's in a public tragedy, you know? And so it's on the news, it's in the radio, it's on the TV, everybody's talking about it. And I know for myself that even 40 years later, I don't think I have fully processed it. And I kind of feel that because of that, it sort of it felt a bit like a circus. You know, there was so much going on and there was the trauma and there was the shock that that I don't think I processed all my emotions because, um, you know, the anniversary comes around and sometimes I get upset, other times I don't. But I I don't think I'm the only one. I don't Mm. think I'm the only one that actually feels like that. Mm. Do you think that could be quite a common Mm. theme with people? And and if it is, this is a twofold question, how do you deal with all unresolved grief? Yeah, Lizzie, I I think actually it's more common than you think. And I think because of the magnitude of the accident is one thing, the utter tragedy of it all for everyone concerned, and then accentuated by the political bickering and controversy and problems was just kind of, you know, salt in the wound through 1980, 1981. So um, I think that complicated. And I don't think looking back that as Kiwis, you know, as a nation and as a people, when I think about Pike River and, and, and the Christchurch earthquake in more recent times, I think I think we've learned as a nation how to collectively care and listen better than what happened in 1979. You, you know, I don't think we had the language back then. I mean, in my family, I don't remember anyone sitting down and saying, oh, you know, how are you feeling or how's this going for you? But then 
I wasn't alone in that experience. That was pretty common in 1979 New Zealand, I think, in terms yes. of how did we process stuff. Yes. I don't know if we did. Yes. Well, you know, some families are very good at talking and processing, others aren't, and there's, there's complexities of, I mean, it was a tragedy for everyone on the plane, but some were even more complicated than others in terms of, you know, uh, the, the, the loss. So um, grief is always an individual journey, and you ask about, you know, how to process it, and Time is a healer, but also the opportunities that New Zealand and families and, and, and churches, you know, g- giving appropriate opportunities to remember, to pray, to reflect. And that's where the memorial comes in, because it has a role as a place to go to honour the names that, that in New Zealand as a nation is kind of honouring this. And with some sense too from me in New Zealand in the past 2009 and government to some degree, you know, there's been kind of apologies on on the, on the way, and maybe not full apologies, but you know, it was badly done. Mm. The, the government, the airline, so there is apologies to be given, and I think there's a certain element of healing that has happened across the years. But I do believe the memorial and its opening will be another part of that, as well as anniversary services that I've been involved in planning with others to give people an opportunity to, to grieve in a, you know, an appropriate, worshipful, prayerful atmosphere. Richard, um, one of the reasons for this podcast is that I actually wanted to create a safe space for people to come and be heard. Just, you know, there's no right or wrong. How you feel is how you feel. What you remember, what was significant to you, um, how it impacted you and your family. But I think there's something really powerful and hearing each other's stories. Uh, for those of us who are in the, the Erebus community, I guess, um, and have connected, um, Sarah Miles, who's written her book that mm. I'll be talking to mm. in, in a later episode, uh, Towards the Mountain, and you just meet somebody and you've had this shared experience and it's like, where were you? Um, what were you doing? How old were you? Who did you lose? And you just actually form this bond because mm. you've got this common experience and you speak, it's like you speak the same language. Mm, mm. And Sarah and I are actually um, good mates now <laughs> through both doing our mm. own sort of Erebus mm. projects. And mm. th- there's something healing and actually mm. being heard and, mm. and having a safe space to speak. Mm. I think as you share that, Lizzie, you know, I, I'm hugely encouraged because many of us for whom, you know, starting the journey of the Erebus Memorial, we didn't entirely see that coming, but isn't that a wonderful blessing and benefit of families coming together and we had a meeting for the 39th anniversary that you were part of where uh, I remember somebody saying to me, I've never been in such a large group where everyone has been on the same journey as me because of Erebus, their individual grief journey, of course, but the same. And there's a, there's a great solidarity there. And I think what happened back then, there was no great organising of the families like the Pike River families have done. Everyone was kind of on their own. Uh, and then, as I say, um, not helped by the political uh, controversy. Uh, of the time. So I think this togetherness of families meeting one another, what the memorial will do, what the anniversary service is doing, bringing a a vast range of people. And and you're a granddaughter. Mm. So in our research on the memorial, we found two parents still alive who have lost children on the plane. We found a number of spouses still alive, many spouses, and sisters and brothers, that generation, 
and then we have children, and then we have grandchildren. You see how it's like a pyramid? Mm. and But all affected in one way or another, and that's why it's really important that this 40th anniversary you know, is is marked appropriately because we don't want to wait another 10 years. It's just too late. It's been long enough. Richard, um, I just actually, on behalf of my family, and I'm sure I probably can speak for some of the other Erebus families, I just wanted to say thank you to you personally for the work that you've done. Um, I know we didn't meet that long ago, but you also introduced me and connected me to some other people. And... Um, Sometimes you actually need somebody else outside a situation to stand up and speak on behalf of you, to be somebody that you can actually talk about how you feel and um, with your continued uh, work that you are doing with the memorial. Just um, thank you so much. Mm, Thank you, Lizzie. That means a lot to me and many others who, you know, uh, said, look, this is timely and New Zealand's ready. It's overdue. And I have to say the, the government and the Ministry of Culture and Heritage, they've got on with the job very well. Thanks for listening to this episode of Erebus Engraved on Our Hearts. I'm Lizzie Oakes. Thanks to Scott Gillen, my audio engineer, and to Rima Media for their support. In the next episode, I'll be talking with Denise Roper, who lost her wonderful father, Frank Christmas. To subscribe, go to Erebus Engraved on Our Hearts on iTunes, Spotify, or erebusengravedonourhearts.com. 